Hello, welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rablick, and thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. And one of the interesting things that uh, people will need to keep an eye out for if they're investors or uh, you know, stakeholders and looking at companies more deeply, whether they be environmental uh, groups and others, as well as some um, people in the media, you know, critics like myself, is that there'll be a suite of new disclosures that'll be flowing through uh, company annual reports. Now, uh, they relate to sustainability uh, and they can cover everything from climate to um, you know, human resources and, and a range of other uh, pieces of information that are often regarded as being non-financial but still necessary for the assessment of corporate and performance and fulfilment of you know, corporate obligations to society. Now, it, in order to explain this, I've got the perfect person uh, joining me, and it's the Deputy Chair of the International Sustainability Standards Board, Sue Lloyd, who's been involved in accounting regulation for longer than I can remember. Um, now, Sue's going to take us through some aspects of international sustainability standards, as well as where things might end up in the future. Sue, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's great to chat to you. Now, it, it, sustainability standards are different to what you have kind of dealt with both here in Australia and internationally in the accounting standards space. Can we begin this discourse by defining what the International Sustainability Standards Board actually is? Yep, good place to start. So, um, so the International Sustainability Standards Board is um, firstly the sister board of the International Accounting Standards Board that people in Australia hopefully um, might be aware of because that's uh, the International Accounting Standards, are IFRS, are what is used for reporting um, for financial statements for you know the large list of companies in Australia. And so it's a sister board to, to the Accounting Standards Board. And I start with that because really the International Sustainability Standards Board is seeking to do what the International Accounting Standards Board did, bring a global language for reporting on sustainability that meets the needs of investors to make informed investment decisions um, and using a global reporting system so that we can flow these requirements out around the world, which benefits investors, because then they know that when they pick up a set of financial statements and it's got the IFRS brand on the top, that they can be confident to make comparisons, even when it's between companies that are reporting from different jurisdictions. Um, and that if you're a company, you benefit from having a reporting system that you recognise, for example, if you've got different operations in different parts of the world. So it's now, very much about bringing that global language into, into place. Uh, it's interesting observation you make in terms of you know, it being uh, a similar task to what the IASB has undertaken. Um, I guess we could, we, it's taken sustainability standards sort of 20 years uh, to get to this point. The IASB, of course, came about in 20, 2000, 2001. Um, it, while we're while we're reflecting on the SSB's existence, is there, have you got a reason or rationale or explanation as to why it's taken so long for the sustainability body of standards to get to that same point? 
Uh, well, in some ways, it's been a long journey before it's got to a global point, but in other ways, it's a really quick journey. Um, so I think it sort of depends on which perspective you, you you think about, because if you think about accounting standards, we started off with many, many, many years of companies reporting to investors using accounting standards that were very different languages around the world. So if you think yes. of it that way, it was quite a long time before the IASB came in and put in place this global accounting language for financial statements. And if I contrast that with what's happened with the International Sustainability Standards Board, you're right, forms of sustainability reporting have been around for an extended period of time, for example, with the Global Reporting Initiative. But the idea of a set of standards which is particularly crafted to meet the needs of investors is actually a relatively new concept. And the idea that we'd be moving to a regulatory system where there'd be requirements to include within your annual reporting package information about sustainability risks designed to meet investors is actually quite a new idea. So in a way, the establishment of the IESSB has happened very quickly, um, if you think about that context. And it's happened, I think, quite quickly because we're hoping that by getting going with the International Sustainability Standards Board early on, we can avoid the... Uh, the, the complexity of many different um, investor-focused sustainability reporting standards around the world having to be reconciled later on and really start with the ISSB setting standards early on and then encouraging jurisdictions to start off straight away when they require regulatory reporting on sustainability with climate first, and but not only, starting with the ISSB standards. So I'd say it's actually quite quick rather than slow. Well, by, by, it is by comparison and reflection. Uh, because IFAC established the International Accounting Standards Committee in 1973. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, people were working on this global set of documents, which had options and other things, and sustained their own, kept their own individual sets of accounting standards. So from about 1973, you had an idea of an international body of gap, but it took until 2000, 2001, when I, no, 2000, when IOSCO said, we want you guys reporting the same way. Exactly. And that kicked into, you know, that turned the ISP into a reality, right? Exactly. And yeah. if I contrast that journey, which is a fantastic comparison, actually, Tom, um, we had the IOSCO endorsement of the IFRS, what's become the IFRS accounting standards in two, about 2000, as you say, yep. um, whereas we've had the ISSB established uh, just uh, at COP26 just a few years ago, and the IOSCO endorsement of the standards happening in July this year. So if you think about it that way, it's actually been a very quick journey. Yeah, uh, and the ISB, if we can go back to the ISB standards, the I, that the concept of a single set of global accounting standards was publicly discussed at the Sydney IOSCO meeting in 2000. I happened to be there. Oh, really? Okay. Um, it, it, yes, it, it's a while ago. Now, if due process is an interesting thing to help, but how with uh, sustainability standards, given their nature and given the fact that you might have a different audience for these disclosures, what's different about the due process that you undertake with them as opposed to the financial reporting standards uh, that people may be more familiar with? 
Again, I think uh, what's striking is the similarity of due process. And just to focus on that just for a second as background, I think one of the reasons why the IFRS Foundation was chosen as the home for this new international standard setting board for sustainability was because of the very well-established due process that the foundation was known for um, uh, as a result of the International Accounting Standards Board. So the fact that um, we have um, a you know public board meetings, that we don't do anything without putting it out for consultation, we get um, feedback and we re-deliberate, and we have a due process handbook and a process which is overseen by the trustees um, of our um, foundation is something we've picked up and we've moved across essentially to the International Sustainability Standards Board. We've picked it up and moved it across. So, oh, okay, so um, you basically cut and paste it. Essentially, yes, exactly that, Tom, because what, what a decision was made by the trustees, I think, in March uh, last year, um, 2021, to use the same due process handbook for the um, ISSB as for the IASB. So wherever you read the word IASB, basically put an ISSB in the same process as there. And so um, reflecting that, we put our... Um, our standards, the, the ones that have turned into IFRS S1 and S2, out for comment last year for um, the full comment period, 120 days, and was delighted to receive more than 1,400 responses, so the same sort of due process. You're right, there's more interested parties, and so what was really interesting to me, having been in standard setting for, for a very long time now, is that we got a really different group of, you know, we got the traditional companies, we got many investors responding, but we also got lots of um, people interested in prudential regulation. We got many sort of NGOs and others. So it's certainly you can see a, a breadth of um, interest, which is different to the pure accounting standard setting, but essentially the same process is used. Um, but we, we benefit from, you know, a whole range of perspectives really adding to our deliberations. Before we get on to the two standards that people are uh, uh, gradually working their way through, getting their head around and trying to understand, um, if we can touch on a part of the process of, of any board is not just doing stuff, but also setting a forward agenda, setting a work program. Um, it's kind of interesting looking at the ISB's work program and the work programs many accounting standards set it. Um, but and most people wouldn't even look at that stuff because they, they find it a little dreary and boring. But how is the agenda being set for the IWSB given that you have a broader um, remit in the sense that it's non-financial? And there are a whole raft of issues people want resolved in the next five minutes. How's the agenda setting process working at the moment? Yeah, so um, again, we've borrowed what's worked well with the Accounting Standards Board by um, asking our stakeholders what we should work on next. So we want to be informed by what uh, market participants think is most important for us to do, because obviously we can't do everything at once. So it's really important for us to understand where the information needs are in the market um, and what people think the, the highest priorities are. 
And so we put out an agenda consultation for comment and that closed on, on the 1st of September. And again, really interesting to see a huge interest in that, more than 400 responses to that, which is a very, very high level of responses. And really interestingly to me, about 70 of those responses was from users of financial statements. So from the investor community, which is an incredibly high number of um, investors expressing an interest in what we work on next. So we'll um, look at the feedback that we um, received and we'll deliberate in public meetings uh, what we decide to do and we hope to um, publish our uh, work plan for the next two years in the first half of, of 2024. But maybe just to give you a little bit of colour about, you know, what we're going to have to think about. Oh, colour is good. Well, colour's always good. Um, not too much, but a little bit. Um, so... Uh, one of the really important questions we've asked our stakeholders is how much time should we actually spend not rushing onto the next topic, but making sure that people have got the materials and support they need to get the first two standards up and running, applied well, understood well, um, and they've got time to digest that. Because this is a really new type of reporting for many, and even what we've done in S1 and S2 is a bit of a whoa for many um, who are reading the standards. So we need to think hard first about how much time do we need to spend as a board helping people with S1 and S2. Then now. we say, okay, now, given that, how much do we spend on new things? And when we talk about new things, there's four things that we asked our stakeholders for specific feedback on. That was three sustainability topics, okay. uh, biodiversity, okay. ecosystems, ecosystem services, bees for short. Um, human capital, so for example, diversity, equity and inclusion, human rights, for example, um, how are you making sure that people in your uh, supply chain are, are, are being treated you know, appropriately, um, where it might reflect on the value of the company, and then a fourth project, which would be further integrating the reporting between sustainability reporting and the financial statements. Um, and so over the next few months, we'll start deliberating which of those are four um, we should uh, be prioritising, and is there more than one that we should start working on? Now, we mentioned something in code earlier, which was S1 and S2. Now, there's uh, probably a good chance I know what they are, but somebody listening to, the, to this may not understand it. So let's explain what S1 is, shall we? <laughs> S1, you want me to start with S1? Yes, let's let's crack the code. So S1 is our very excitingly named general requirements for um, sustainability-related disclosures, um, and that sets the scene for this reporting. So what it does is um, sort of sets up the plumbing almost. So it says to companies, we want you to provide information about the sustainability-related risks and opportunities that um, are reasonably expected to affect your future prospects, so your cash flows, your business model, your cost of capital, your access to finance, what things to report on is the first thing that um, S1 talks about. It then says we want you to provide this information focused on meeting the needs of investors, and it explains how to think about how to think about that. It then goes on to say, and by the way, we want this information to be well connected with the financial statements. Uh, so we need to be able to understand how what you're saying over here in your sustainability report reflect uh, correlates with what you've said in your financial statements, and if there's differences, why. And it also goes on to say, and we want this report provided at the same time as the financial statements and in the same reporting package. So it's really setting the scene for the reporting and describing the type of information that should be provided to meet investors' information needs. And... 
Yeah. In 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 simple terms, it's it it essentially says you've got the numbers, and then you've got this other stuff. We want you to present the numbers and this other stuff together, so people have a panoramic view of the entity to the widescreen as opposed to four three ratio. Absolutely. That's a very nice way of, of summarising it. And I think that one of the really important things to, to note is this sets the scene. And then the, the sort of design of our standards is that if you identify a particular uh, thing that you think you need to provide information about, climate's the poster child, then if we have a specific standard about climate, you would then go to that standard and that tells you the specific disclosures to provide on climate risks and over time we'll build out that library in the interim we say okay we don't have a standard on climate etc uh, beyond climate so look to some other sources of guidance for inspiration and we have a list of different alternatives to use at the moment until we fill out the library but what's really important about s1 is it's designed to be used with the climate standard and that's because when you're reporting on climate, you still need to know, okay, it needs to be investor focused and how to think about that is an S1. It needs to be provided with the financial statements and that description is an S1. So it's designed to be working as a package. The two standards are designed to, to work well together. If we turn so to, it, to, to S2, maybe? Uh, it might be an idea, yes. <laughs> so the second standard that we published, so we published two on the same day, so um, which is unusual, um, is our climate standard. And so that sets out when you've used S1 and you've identified climate as something to report on, this tells you the particular disclosures to provide. And what I should say actually about both S1 and S2 is if you're um, somebody who's familiar with the TCFD requirements, that uh, recommendations, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, you'll recognise a lot of what's in S1 and S2 because we've basically built S1 and S2 from the TCFD recommendations. So those of you who know the TCFD recommendations will know that that asks for information about climate risks. So the physical risks you might be exposed to because of climate, the risk of wildfire, flooding, et cetera, the risk of, to, of disruptions to your supply chain because of those physical risks, for example. Information about transition risks arising from climate. Are you going to have to change your business model because a regulator, for example, is no longer allowing you to have so such high greenhouse gas emissions? What are you going to do about that? How are you going to change your business model? What's the effect on your future prospects? So information about the transition risks, but also information about opportunities. There's opportunities for some companies because they have technology which is going to be very um, saleable as people try to address climate change. Maybe you produce um, the, the pieces that are needed for um, uh, you know, uh, wind-generated renewable energy, for example. Or maybe you've got a really smart way of transitioning your business that you think is smarter than your competitors. We want information about opportunities as well because investors want to know where's a great place to invest their money. And so S2 is all about climate-related risks and opportunities. If you use S2, you automatically comply with the TCFD recommendations. So that's a way of reducing the complexity of the reporting environment. And the last thing I'll say on S2, if I could, Tom, yeah. You know me, I, I can go on all day when you ask me questions. About That's all right. But, um, 
with with S two and S one, in, in fact, one of the really particular special things about sustainability reporting, which is you know was very new to me when I moved across from the accounting world, is that we ask for industry specific information, and that's a very particular piece of the reporting for the ISSB, and that's because investors need to understand how sustainability risks manifest in a particular industry. So don't have to think for too long. If I'm asking you to explain how climate might affect your business and you're an airline or an oil and gas company or a food company, the things you might need to report on are quite different. And so that's why we ask for industry-specific information to facilitate really well-informed decision-making for investors. The extractive industries would already be there because they will be the focus of accounting standards across the globe. Uh, to begin with, so they're thinking about things that are uh, industry-specific will really be more advanced, perhaps, than in other sectors. Would I be correct in saying that? I think you're you're very right to say that, and actually, um, S one uh, yes. totally reflects. Yeah, you get a you get a gold star um, because what we say in S one, we know. You know, there's been lots of companies have tried hard to do good reporting in this space, but there's just been a very fragmented, you know, environment for regulation um, and uh, standards. But certainly companies have sought to provide relevant information to investors. And so there is a lot of industry practice that has developed. Um, and S1 says, in the absence of a specific requirement from the ISSB, a valid source of um, inspiration to meet the requirements of our standards is industry practice where it meets investor information needs. So people can build on their current reporting. They don't have to start, you know, totally from a clean sheet of paper. Um, I'm tempting fate here with the next question, and I may regret <laughs> it. Um, but one of the challenges in financial reporting as a general observation is sort of measurement. And the debates over measurement in financial reporting um, are vexed, to say the least. When we move to sustainability, um, I've got a strong suspicion that they can be equally fascinating. What are some of the challenges you're coming across? Yes, Um I think you're right. I think even more fascinating, if I, you know, which I never thought I'd say is, you know, a very proud long-term accountant who, you know, has been involved in financial instrument accounting for a long time. So I've certainly dealt with my I, I remember that. <laughs> interesting measurement questions in the past. Um, <laughs> and so I'm really pleased you actually start with that analogy because all too often people talk to me as though every number in financial statements is, you know, tr the truth and there's only one view. And you know, I know that that's not the case, but there can be a bit of that perception. Um, perception. And you're right, there's already lots of estimation and financial statements. So fair value measurement, for example, expected credit losses. There's, you know, numbers that need to a lot of estimation, um, even impairments on, you know, goodwill. Um, it, you know, there's lots of discussion about that, as everybody knows. But we move over to sustainability. And you're exactly right, Tom, that this is an, another whole level of um of complexity when it comes to measurement. But it is important to remember that people have skills to deal with this because they're used to estimation in the financial statements. It's a different type of estimation, but it is still, you know, it's not totally, totally, totally new. Mm -hmm. I think what is different though here is 
Um, a lot of the disclosures so far on sustainability have tended to be very qualitative, very descriptive. You know, I'm thinking about this, I'm working on that, but not as much quantitative information. And what you find when you get to the sustainability space is the measurement techniques and approaches, they're just much more nascent. So it's a really very early part of the journey for a lot of the measurement that we have um, in the sustainability space. So I think that's the big difference, Tom. It's, 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 it's developing. A lot of the thinking is developing. That's one thing that's really different. Um, so I think we'll see evolution quite fast. And I think we need to be ready for that evolution and encourage it, not you know be afraid of it. The other thing that is tricky with sustainability is it's got two particular characteristics that aren't, aren't unique to sustainability, but they're certainly very um, pronounced when we get to sustainability. One is that it's really important to be forward-looking. It's really important to think about the future effects and prospects, climate expectations, climate scenarios. I don't have to speak for very long before you realise that's not going to be easy to quantify because there's so much uncertainty. So that's a very particular uh, consideration when we get to measurement and sustainability. It's the need to consider long-term effects and the uncertainty of those effects. So that's one challenging area. The second challenging area is that um, we're very interested not just in what the company itself does very directly, but things that happen in its whole value chain or supply chain. The poster child for this that people um, talk about is scope three, greenhouse gas measurement, where we're asking companies not just to report on the emissions from their own you know, use of machinery, but also to report on emissions from their supply chain, going back potentially to the source of raw materials and the use of their products and the disposal of the products that they produce. And often you're not going to be able to directly measure that. It's going to involve estimation. And a lot of those techniques and um, processes and controls are still developing and they're new to many people. And so that's the secondary, I think, that is um, special when it comes to measurement around sustainability. There is another matter that is not necessarily your problem. It belongs to somebody else, but it merits reflection. Um, with, all of the, with all of this quantification in the sustainability space, is the question of trust. How critical is not just the production of data in accordance with methodologies that people accept, but also the assurance of that data? It's fundamental, Tom, because what this whole, you know, if you step back from all of the detail, you know, what's the point of everything we're doing here? The point of everything we're doing here is that we know that investors really need to understand sustainability risks and opportunities to make informed investment decisions. You can't do make investment decisions without understanding how a company is going to be affected by something like climate risk. It's just too pervasive. So they need this information. And they need to be confident that they can rely on this information. So we're trying to bring this type of information as close as we can to the level of robustness and trust that's associated with financial statements. And financial statements are trusted not just because, you know, there's great accounting standards that form the basis for that reporting, but because there's a, an assurance and regulatory regime around that that gives confidence that somebody's checking to make sure that what has happened has been uh, done well. Um, and, and there's good control and uh, checking of those processes. 
So the assurance of the information that comes from applying our standards is fundamentally important to the trust that we need to build to really achieve our objectives here. We want investors to be comfortable to rely on the information used when our standards are applied. And so it's a really, really, really important issue. Not something we control because decisions about what assurance standards are applied and to who and the pace at which it's introduced and whether it's you know limited assurance, reasonable assurance, any assurance at all, is a decision made by um, jurisdictions rather than the IFRS Foundation, but something we're super interested in because it's going to be at the heart of the credibility of the information that gets produced. And I think it would be unfortunate if companies would have put so much time and effort into applying our standards and then investors don't feel confident to use the information. So we're super interested in the decisions made about assurance by jurisdictions. And we're super interested in the work that the IAASB, another acronym, the International Auditing Assurance Standards Board, and the International Ethics Standards Board, IASBA, are doing at the moment to try to make sure that their standards are ready and fit for purpose to enable a good assurance of this new type of information that we're bringing into the market for investors. There's another, uh, if I may be uncharacteristically difficult, um, there is another um, element to all of this, isn't there? Um, because we mentioned the development of the standards, requirements for disclosure, requirements for measurement, the assurance of them. But none of that works adequately, does it, if there's no enforcement of these things? Are you able, what, in the financial reporting framework, how important is the role of, of, of the regulator? I think there's two really other critical pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Um, one is regulation to actually introduce our standards. So at the moment, you know, I'm sitting here telling you about the, how wonderful the global baseline is that we've developed using S1 and S2 that's going to bring comparable information around the world. The next step we need is jurisdictions to actually use our global baseline. So we need the adoption into regulation to require our companies to use our standards to make sure the information actually flows. So we need that. That's really critically important. And then accompanying that totally important, Tom, is the regulation and the um, enforcement that comes with this as well. So the sort of design for our standards is that uh, our hopes and dreams, and it's not just our hopes and dreams, it's also the hopes and dreams of IOSCO, the International Securities Regulators, when they endorsed our standards, they asked uh, their 130 member jurisdictions to, uh, for a call to action act to bring these standards into your national regulation. And that's designed to come in with the securities regulators as part of that jigsaw who are then involved in the in the enforcement, as you rightly say, so that we can have the confidence of the assurance of the standards and then the confidence that there's enforcement as well. And that's the sort of icing on the cake, if you like, in terms of the robustness of the system. So you're right. That's a really, really, really fundamental part of um, the conversation. We've spoken about S1, S2, we've covered a whole heap of ground in the past well, half hour or so. Um, is your meeting uh, critical, it sits in the back in the front of your mind that yeah, you want people to keep in mind in relation to what the IWSB is doing at the moment? Yes, 
the thing that I'm really um, encouraging people to talk about when I am uh, have the opportunity to engage, so thank you for taking the time to give me that opportunity, is really uh, sort of echoing IOSCO's call to action. We've done, a, I think, a good job of uh, listening to the market, uh, doing what was asked of us, which was getting S1 and S2 out on high quality on a timely basis to create the possibility of a global baseline, to enable good information to flow to investors in a way that comparisons can be made around the world. We now need jurisdictions to step up and take the opportunity to use S1 and S2 to require information to flow in their markets. And so if you're listening to this and you think, well, that sounds like a good idea for investors and companies, being involved in the discussion to really encourage the fact that it is our standards that are used in markets around the world and that we take the opportunity to use these standards without further adjustment and jurisdictional uh, tinkering to, that would introduce regulatory fragmentation of the ecosystem, which is really contrary to the design of the ISSB is really something I'm asking people to really get behind and think, okay, it might be nice to make changes that are jurisdiction specific. And it's it's always a nice feeling to think that, okay, we might like this here more or less. But really encouraging people to think, okay, from an accounting perspective, we really benefited from having the IFRS accounting standards applied consistently around the world. Let's grab that opportunity to do the same here. And let's also grab the opportunity to get really involved in building the global baseline. You know, there's changes, you know, people are always worried about, you know, uh, sort of ceding authority almost to the IFRS foundation and, and not having control at a jurisdictional level. There's things in S2, in particular on the measurement of greenhouse gas emissions that were included because of Australia, because of feedback we had from Australia about the fact that the GHG protocol is sometimes not the measurement system used for emissions measurement in Australia, and it would be very burdensome to require it to be used. We created an exception in S2 because of that feedback from Australia and one or two other jurisdictions. So there's a real ability to influence what goes into the global baseline. And that's the ideal way to really engage in our work rather than, and then building upon our due process and using our standards. So your, your, your final message is essentially, um, you know, the, to not to regard the IWSB as being kind of something that's you know, that you want to play with, just to leave your leave your own mark on there, but to use the use the due process, if you like, to um, to to argue the case, as David Tweedy would would say, you know, and have the contest of ideas, um, in order to in order to get the best possible product from the central commentary position in London. Yes, exactly. Now, Sue, one of the things that I often close these podcasts with is um, how, where do people find more information if they are interested in understanding what's going on? First place to go to is our website, so ifrs.org, and we've got a whole section of information on our sustainability work including introductory webcasts and videos in terms of uh, the S1 and S2 standards, the standards themselves and all the supporting material that comes with them is all on our ifrs.org website. And shortly we'll also be um, launching a knowledge hub. 
that will be an ISSB knowledge hub, which will have a, a source of a whole load of different materials, which we have identified, some produced by us, some produced by knowledge partners and others, that will be, I think, a really rich resource for people who want to really dig in um, and get ready to, to apply these standards. I've been talking to Sue Lloyd, the Deputy Chair of the International Sustainability Standards Board. Sue, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.